This is the Accounting Influencers Podcast with Rob Brown and Martin Bissett. With Rob Brown and Martin Bissett. Hello and welcome to the Accounting Influencers Podcast, professional daily development in audio format for accounting practitioners, CPAs and bookkeepers, plus the fintech software vendors and specialists who serve them. I'm Rob Brown. And along with my co-host, Martin Bissett, we bring you the critical insights, best practice, expert interviews, market intelligence, practical here's what works, tips, and occasional rants on the accounting world. And if you're a new listener to the show, the audience here is accountants and CPAs, together with the networks, associations, vendors, influencers who lead them, work with them, work in them, and serve them. The full show goes live every Monday with daily segments featuring news rants, experts, guest interviews, and to help you stay informed, current, and even gain an edge in the accounting world, this is your number one podcast choice. Coming up on this week's shows, we have the segment starting with the news, and we ask the question, how long can KPMG last? And we talk about losing your credibility. What's happening here? Well, we focus in on accounting web, Richard Murphy, journalist, tax expert, asking the question, whether a big four firm can remain viable in a world where professional credibility is everything. And he does a really interesting piece on charting the audit failure timeline of KPMG, just highlighting why they've fallen short of standards. And Martin and I talk about how a portrait record affects recruitment of talent and clients for accounting firms. We ask how long an accounting firm can survive a loss of reputation. And that's an accounting firm of any size. And what kind of things damage the professional credibility of accounting practices? Ultimately, we give you what smaller accounting firms than KPMG, and there are a lot of them, can learn from reputation and the importance of trust and keeping promises in accounting firms of all sizes. That is the news. Then we have an interview with Jody Paydar. Jody's been on the show before. She is the radical CPA. She's the head of tax and evangelism at April. And they're a new software accounting platform. She's written books on CPA. She was in Botkeeper. And she's now moved to April. She's talking about the relationship between accountants and software vendors. It's a very delicate one. So some of the things we discuss in that interview were automation, artificial intelligence, machine learning, bots are already here for accountants and CPAs and why those who wait will lose. She, Jody talks about what disruption really looks like for the accounting profession, how AI is changing things, why being a CPA or accountant helps in developing software for the accounting profession. So she's looking at the kind of people that are developing accounting software. She talks a little bit about getapril.com in the tax world and their unique value proposition and what accountants need to know about what's new in the movement of money and the tax software ecosystem. She especially has some interesting things to say about the neobanks and challenger banks and how they've set a precedent for tax software and the way accounting firms handle the money in their account in their clients' businesses. And changes in tax software automation, that enables accountants and CPAs to deliver much better advisory services. So that's the interview with Jody Paydar. Check that out. Then we'll be looking at what works for accounting firms and employer brand. This is an increasingly delicate subject insofar as where's the talent coming from? How good is your firm at differentiating themselves? When a potential employee looks at your firm, why should they decide to come to you above and beyond all of their other choices, including the choice not to go into accountancy or the choice to go into industry rather than a private practice? That is, here's what works. And we'll be giving you some tips on what a good employee brand is, how you need to tell stories of what's happening within your firm, 
what you can do to attract the right kind of talent, tell the right kind of stories, and do it in an authentic way. And bring out your values and your culture in a way that makes talent think, this is the place I want to be. This is a great place to work. And finally, we have an interview of Richard Hattersley of Accounting Web. They're getting some good mentions this week. Richard is doing the first of two interviews, this one on accounting awards. Now, has your firm, has your software company ever entered awards? Why do you do it? What are the benefits of it? Is there a return on investment? What kind of things should you consider? Why awards make great PR? How people get awards wrong? Some of the secrets in putting in your pitches and proposals and nominations for awards. Richard Haddersley has got all of that covered. So that's what's coming up for you in this week's show. We thank our commercial partners, uh, Iris, Ignition, Dext, Advanced Track Outsourcing, Accountex. We have room for a couple more sponsors if you want to have a conversation with us about that. And we thank you, Earmark CPE, that give the CPD CPE accreditation to this show. Go to earmarkcpe.com, download the app, and look for the courses from the Accounting Influencers Show. You can get accreditation, professional development points for listening to a podcast. How good is that? And without further ado, we've got a lot to cover today, so let's get moving. And thank you to our special sponsors, Iris Software. Martin, you saw a great video just recently from Iris, didn't you? Yeah, what I think people don't understand about Iris is they were ahead of the game for MTD Phase 1 because they were the first software vendor to be listed as approved by the HMRC for MTD filing. And guess what? They're fully prepared for the next. So they've got an MTD webinar on demand that you can catch up with at any time. Rob, where do they go to to see this? It's iris.co.uk forward slash MTD webinar. That stands for making tax digital for our international listeners. And there's some great stuff there that you need to know to guide you through the whole Making Tax Digital initiative. So iris.co.uk forward slash MTD webinar. Right, Martin? That's right. So wherever you are in your journey, Iris know that they have the knowledge and tools to help you in the next steps. That's iris.co.uk forward slash MTD webinar. And it's time for the news wherever you are. This is Global News, International News, maybe even a bit of regional news. We're looking at what's topical in the accounting profession. And Martin, history has a habit of repeating itself, doesn't it? What have you got for us this week? Well, Rob, you won't know because you're not an old person, like myself and others. They'll tell you that the current big four in accounting, it wasn't always like that. There was a big five and there was a big eight going back long enough. At the time, it was always thought that those firms were too big to fail. And then the Enron scandal came along and bye-bye Arthur Anderson. Um, and as a result, the, you know, if not the biggest, then one of the biggest accounting firms in the world toppled and fell and was sold off for scrap, all because of one major scandal. Now, we have a, a gentleman called Richard Murphy this week who writes an accounting web. Um, and he's the founder of Tax Research UK. He's also a blogger. And he's put a very, very controversial or perhaps a little bit challenging title uh, on his latest article, which says, how long can KPMG last? <laughs> it's a headline grabber. It's a headline grabber. Now, for all of us listening to this podcast, we will recognize KPMG. Or maybe we think that a firm that big isn't relevant to us. And if you're thinking it's not relevant, listen on. Richard opens up by saying, up against a £1 billion lawsuit, that's about $1.6 billion, and constant audit scrutiny, the outlook for KPMG is not as strong as its initial results suggest. 
Richard Murphy questions whether the big four firm can remain viable in a market where professional credibility is everything. So right from the start here, well, the, the author is saying, is one of the biggest, most financially robust organizations viable? It sounds like a stupid question on the face of it. Of course they're viable. They've got tremendously strong uh, financial results. But he acknowledges that and goes into a deep dive. So straight away he says, KPMG would appear to be in rude health. The average partner profit in the most recently published accounts increased to £688,000 a year, or £436 million in total, with a total turnover increasing to £2.35 billion. However, he says, as all good accountants know, profit and turnover are not always the best guide to the well-being of a company, especially when the long term is being considered. And what he does from there, Rob, is he then looks at KPMG's recent form, which he calls the audit failure timeline. And he lists various things that KPMG have fallen foul of. Then he talks about the Carillion audit scandal. Carillion Guys was a major construction company here in the UK. And so he's saying that KPMG's track record in its perhaps lack of attention to detail recently is a risk to recruiting potential clients and new recruits into its talent pool. So the big question here, which I love him asking, says, can KPMG survive a loss of reputation? And he, and he writes that his question is, how long can a firm, that, so we're all long to talk about KPMG, he's made it accountancy-wide now, how long can a firm survive loss of reputation on the scale that KPMG has and still remain viable in a market where professional credibility is everything? So here's the news. Obviously, we'll keep an eye on KPMG because that's going to be interesting popcorn, watching stuff. Can a firm survive and be viable in the long term when its professional credibility suffers? Now, let's bring it all the way down from KPMG down to parochial firm in local town. When its professional credibility suffers, when it doesn't return phone calls quickly, when it is known to overcharge and knock down negotiations so far that they saw they were overcharging originally, when it treats its staff poorly, when it doesn't establish its message clearly. These things are micro examples of losing professional credibility. And in last week's news, we talked about TurboTax and other software vendors spending huge money on getting eyeballs of the general public. Now, accounting firms, can they learn from KPMG? Can they see how KPMG is losing professional credibility on an enormous macro scale and bring that down to their own micro scale to say, what are we doing in this firm right now which loses professional credibility for us? And if we continue, are we viable in the long term? That's such a great piece and a, a wonderful thought-provoking question. And of course, we mentioned KPMG, but Ensign Young, Deloitte, PwC, other big four firms are available. They're all under scrutiny for audit and the way they handle their practices. Trust and credibility are premium assets that should be on the balance sheet but are not. If they are under scrutiny, yes, audit might not be under scrutiny for the smaller or mid-tier firms, but your wider question speaks to credibility keeping promises. We had an episode recently on a bonus, Martin, on why didn't they buy, talking about walking the walk, telling your clients or prospects to get robust pipelines in place and talent pipelines, and then the client says, well, are you doing that? And the accountant says, well, no, or I don't know, and you lose credibility. Exactly right. So let's say we bring up, we, oh, we have a talent and recruitment problem. Why is that? Well, we can't find the right talent. Really? Or did you promise the existing talent things that you never delivered on and trust is broken in the firm? 
does that lose professional credibility? When you say that you are a proactive firm who likes to have a partner-led service and the customer experience is nothing like that, does that lose professional credibility? So for me, and that's not this is not the intention of the author, I'm sure, in this article, but what, for me, the, the, the question it brings up, no, two questions it brings up. One, let's keep an eye on KPMG because what are they doing? But secondly, what's the application for firms that are nothing like that size? The firms are, the, the question is for those firms, what are we doing? What are we doing that's enhancing or losing professional credibility? Because if a large firm can fall, so can a small firm. And I'm mindful of the mantra for many professional services providers, which is don't ever give a client a reason to doubt what you're offering or a reason to not like what you're doing. It all speaks to reputation, credibility, trust. And once it's gone, it is so hard to get back. Absolutely. 30 years to build reputation, three minutes to lose one. You're absolutely right. So for me, for our listeners in this new section, okay, you got some news there. KPMG are being bad boys and girls on a regular basis. But what about your firm? Whether you're a sole practitioner listening to this, whether you're a partner in practice listening to this, whether you're a rising star listening to this, have a look at the customer or client experience, what it feels like to do business with you. And what are you doing that enhances your professional credibility? And what are you doing that loses professional credibility? And what adjustments and course corrections need to be made to make sure you remain viable in the long term? Very good. Let's put a final application on that, Martin, and speak to talent and staff. I spoke to, uh, I work on employer brand with a number of accounting firms, as you know, and spoke to a lady that was big four, and she's now gone to a smaller mid-tier firm for mental well-being, work-life balance, because the big four firms from an employer brand perspective are famous for taking in the cream of the talent, working them hard 60, 70 hours a week for big money, let's face it, but spitting them out after five, 10 years because they can't hack the lifestyle. And really, would you want to be a part of that as a regime and having the credibility and audit questions to answer from your employer. Absolutely right. To take that a stage further, we recently did a research project within our USP practitioner group, uh, which is part of the uh, AI brand and family. And we found that one of the challenges on recruitment, and I know we're not talking specifically about recruitment, but one of the challenges was that jobs were easier in industry. There were easier jobs for better pay in industry. And as you just say there, you know, they went to, they went to a smaller firm for, for mental health reasons. Well, whether it's lifestyle, mental health, pay packet reasons, you know, jobs in practice are less attractive to many than jobs in industry. So the big question becomes for any practice, small or large or in between, how do we remain viable in the long term? So your accounting practitioners put that on the agenda of your next board meeting or team meeting or executive uh, gathering and see what kind of questions come up because we are in crazy times where trust and reputation are at a premium. Martin, thanks so much for that news this week. Improve your practice while decreasing how hard you work to make your firm really fly. Really fly. The Accounting Influencers fly. Podcast with Rob Brown and Martin Bissett. Welcome to the show and in our special guest interview today, we've got the legend that is Jody Paydar. Jody, hello to you. Hey, how are you? Splendid. I can call you legend. You've been in this game a long time. For people that haven't come across you, and I can't believe there are not many, Jody, just give us a flavor of some of the things you've been involved in over the years. I think the funny thing is, is I'm the radical CPA and there are very few branded CPAs, right? So that's one thing. I've written a couple books. Um, I've recently really gone into the startup world, which has been fun and exciting. And ultimately, I began my career like at a regular um, accounting uh, firm, uh, seven partners, you know, doing my thing. And then I left them 
And uh, I started my own firm and I had my own firm for 15 years. So I think I've done everything now that you could possibly do in the accounting space. <laughs> well, you'd think you've done everything, but you managed to find more things to do. And you've recently been involved in a few changes over the last couple of years. So just talk us through your career over the last two or three years and where you are now. In 20. 20, right before the pandemic, I sold my firm to Botkeeper and Botkeeper um, was an artificial, well, it still is an artificial intelligence machine learning company for bookkeeping, right? And my belief in why I joined Botkeeper at the time is because I do believe the bookkeeping function will be automated, right? People say, oh, it's coming, it's coming. It's not coming, it's here. So <laughs> you don't have to wait for it to come. The question is, is when you want to adopt those changes, right? So automation is making such a big difference in our space. I was of the early automation train in the cloud, you know, almost 20 years. If I say 20 years, man, that makes me so old. But if I say 20 years ago when the cloud first started coming out, that was really when I began, like, kind of disrupting the profession and changing things. And then, you know, when I started to hear about this thing called AI, I realized, okay, this is what's next. This is, I'll say, cloud 2.0 or cloud 3.0. This is what's going to be the shift that really changes the accounting profession. And I thought the cloud was going to do it. And yeah, I'm still waiting on the cloud. So <laughs> it hasn't done it. However, AI is doing it. It's changing things. So, so I was at Botkeeper a couple of years. And then um, I was recruited to join a new tech startup called April, which is going after taxes in the consumer space. But we're going to be using artificial intelligence, machine learning to essentially read the tax code, read instructions, and really create new software for today. And the cool thing about it is, is tax software hasn't been changed in 30 years. So if you think about what we can do today versus what we did 30 years ago, the software is going to be very, very different. And we're going to be able to do a lot more things than we used to. So, so that's the exciting thing. It's one thing to do incremental change, but it's another thing to say, look, nothing's been changed in 30 years. And now I'm going to be part of the creator to figure out how to change it, which is exciting. And now that you're in the software space, if you like, and, and startups, it helps you to be a CPA because they understand business, don't they? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> No, I mean, it's funny because, you know, you can be a CPA and CPA can take you many places. And what I've realized is that, you know, CPAs just in general are pretty smart people. So add them to any task and they'll be able to figure it out. But tax is a very innovative world, as you're hinting at. And there's a lot of shaping, regulation, different ways of doing it, different technology all over the world. What excited you about the April opportunity? So a couple of years ago, it was funny. They came to me and they were doing research on it. And they were just asking me as a thought leader what I thought about the tax space and how they could come into the tax space. And I pretty much told them they were crazy. Like, why would they do it? Intuit's here. WK is here. Thompson is here. Why, why would you think you could disrupt it? Like the legacy vendors are here and they've been here for a long time. So then they're like, well, we're going to do some more research. And they went away. And then they came back to me last summer and they were telling me how they kind of had evolved their thought process. They said, well, this is how we're going to approach it. And they, they're coming at it from a fintech space. And I think that's the actual disruption. It's not tax software because tax software is just software. The disruption or the opportunity is really in the money movement. And if you think about it, tax returns, people have always sold off of tax returns, whether they be IRAs, whether they be refund anticipation loans like HR Block used to offer, whether it be like just get your money ahead of time. There's always been money movement attached to a tax return. It's just been in an offline world. 
And what April's trying to do or what April is going to do is going to take kind of that money movement, marry it with tax compliance and do it in a digital world. And so what I think is interesting about it is, is that it's new, but it's not new. And when I say that, meaning the idea of moving money around tax return has been done in a regular world for years. That's not anything new. The only thing that's new is it's now going to be connected to all these digital banks and all this fintech stuff, which is new. And um, taxes are the piece of fintech that have been missing. Everybody talks about fintech. It's funny because when you think about financial planning and wealth management, you can't do a holistic financial plan for a person without including their tax position And yet we've been doing it in this disconnected world. And what April wants to do is to say, look, we're going to give you that tax plan piece and we're going to put it online in a connected world. And now regular, ordinary individual can look at their holistic financial plan because it'll be complete and April will be the tax piece of it compared connected to all your other banking. And you glanced on the term banking there. I just want to come back to that with you. We've certainly seen here in the UK, the challenge of banks where it's all on the app. The user experience is so much better. The high street bank has gone out of business. They're closing their hours. Nobody really wants to go into a bank anymore. So that space has been disrupted and changed. And presumably that gives you hope that the tax space can be similarly disrupted and changed. 100%. I mean, like we're starting with what neobanks, right? Like these challenger banks, banks that were born online. We're not going to brick and mortar. We're saying eventually we'll get to brick and mortar, but we're starting with the banks that were born online. And, you know, we're in the middle of a pilot. And basically our April app is embedded in a handful of banks and people are clicking on it and they're actually uploading all their information, which surprised me because I was like, are they really going to trust tax embedded within their banking app and give us their social security number, give us their, you know, their W-2s, all their information? For all the CPAs who say that their clients won't send them anything digitally, okay, that argument is lost at this point (laughs) because here people are, they're just going into their digital bank and they're uploading all their information. We're doing the tax returns on the back end and we're proving the point that um, tax and banking apps go together and that there's a space there. And it's funny because we thought it, but when you actually see it happen and you see our metrics around it, you're like, damn, it's really working, which is kind of cool. And if the pandemic's taught us anything, it's taught us that we can do this stuff remotely and virtually. Working from home, can we keep all of our clients' data at home on my laptop? Well, actually, we can. The data security now, the cybersec, that's all taken care of. We can do this safely and securely. We can share this information. That's why that argument for the CPAs who say, you know, their clients won't move to the cloud. Uh, Yeah, right. Like... (laughs) It's not an argument. Sorry, you can't tell me that anymore because, you know, everybody and especially the pandemic accelerated. But even in the U.S., the the, the American businesses are, are not famous for moving swiftly. Some of them, we know that CPAs still deal in checkbooks and signing checks and spreadsheets and things like that to a lesser degree here in the U.K. But the accounting profession is one that moves very slowly, certainly not as fast as fintech. But here's the thing. I think the important thing for the accountants to know about this, and I, and again, I think this is interesting because people are like, oh, well, it's consumer focused, you know, and I think the important thing is, is a 1040s, most accountants are choosing to get out of that space anyways, right? So we're not coming in and encroaching that way. But if we can create this tax engine that now becomes a real-time tax planning engine, then 
we can help professionals do their jobs better. And I think that comes back to this advisory and everything that everybody talks about. And we haven't really had the tools to do it. It's kind of hard um, because when we're so busy doing the work, it's hard to get your mind into advisory. You know, it takes, it's, you just only have so many hours in the day. But if you look at the disruption that's happening in the space with taxes and AI and all of that stuff, it's going to allow us to be better advisors, which means we as CPAs and accountants need to up our game and figure out what it is, how we sell it, and how we're going to deliver our services in the future, because automation truly is going to do a lot of the work that we used to do and that we used to like just be proud of. Like, oh, we did it. We got it done. Like that was like what we sold. Well, guess what? The automation is going to do that. So we better figure out as CPAs how we're going to up our game and what we're going to sell in the future. And you mentioned the disruptability of this space. There's some big incumbent providers that you hinted at, but these different ways of funding these things. We've seen the emergence of private equity and venture capital into accounting firms and fintechs. Talk to us a little bit about what's happening there, Jody. I think that's another thing that maybe the whole, like the profession doesn't really see or understand is how much money is coming into the accounting space. And the reason the money's coming into the accounting space is because it hasn't been changed in 30 years, right? So <laughs> when nothing's changed in 30 years, now well, you want to make 30 years, double entry bookkeeping has been like that for millions of years. So, right. It hasn't changed. So this, this private equity, this VC sees an opportunity to get in to update things and to essentially exit because money doesn't come in to stay. Like they're not coming into the accounting space to help accountants or like they're coming in because they believe there's an opportunity to make money and then they're going to exit and they're going to take their money and they're going to go to different space because that's what private equity does. Right. But the thing about it is, is that most CPAs don't realize it's coming and by them not knowing it's coming, they're not even aware of how fast things are going to change because where there's money, there's opportunity for innovation. And I think that's what's been missing in our space for so long. So if you think about the accounting space as a whole, it's run by partners who take money out of their firms and spend it on themselves. They don't necessarily always reinvest it in the firm to make it better or into new innovation or technology to make it better. They just take it out and they spend it on themselves, right? They have nice cars. And I mean, <laughs> that's the way the partnership model works. It's a broken business model though, isn't it? Surely. But here's the thing. If you're used to that and you're always taking money out, you haven't done any innovation, right? So now money comes in, they have the opportunity to disrupt the space with innovation. And that old partner model had better figure out how they're going to adjust and adapt because the way they've done business forever, well, I would argue it's not even working today, but it's going to work less, you know, in the next three years, five years, right? Like I, I would 100% it's not working today, but there are some people who say, oh, you know, I'm still profitable, blah, blah, blah. But I truly believe, you know, in five years, that model is just going to be gone. It can't sustain itself. No. And it's the innovation you're talking about that creates the added value, which is the uplift and the return on investment for the equity that comes in. And again, they don't come into our space because they want to help accountants. They're coming because they know that there's an opportunity for them to make money. Do you have any examples of deals that have been done on the software or the PE route that CPAs could perhaps learn from? Well, I think just if you look at even like April earning or like raising capital, right? Botkeeper raised capital. Carbon just raised a bunch of capital. So Carbon's practice management, right? Like Melio. Melio, right? There's all these tools that before I don't think anyone would have necessarily looked at. And now they're they're being looked at because they, they see the opportunity. And then with even in firms, uh, many of our bigger firms in the US are doing deals with private, private equity where basically private equity is coming in and they're splitting off like the advisory part from the CPA part. And they're um, they're buying up partners is really what they're doing. Because so if you think about it too, 
part of it is, is these partners, they want to retire, they want to do something. And where's their value in their firms? Because the next gen doesn't really want to put their money into it or like evolve it. So now private equity comes in kind of as that management company and really kind of turns it around and manages it, which if you think about firms and the broken business model, it's just coming to a head because there's all these partners who are boomers and they need to go somewhere, right? <laughs> and the next gen isn't necessarily wanting to take them over. And if you're like a, a mid-sized firm, where do you go? You can either go up and get less or you have to have your employees take it over. And most employees aren't, well, the partners would argue they're not ready to take it over. I would argue the partners haven't prepared them to take it over. So where are they going to go? So now here's an opportunity for private equity money to come in, kind of uh, restructure that firm and make it more profitable and give the partners a little bit of a buyout, right? So um, as opposed to, I don't know if in, in the UK it works like this, but in the US, basically when mergers happen in partnerships, all they do is trade equity. There's no cash coming out of it, but when private equity comes into the space, those partners actually get a little bit of capital too. It's not just equity trading for equity. And the accounting firms are now being asked to be run more like commercial businesses rather than professional practices. And that's a more entrepreneurial mindset that the PE uh, people are looking for, they want that return, they want them more properly run. And that does break up the business model. And I think employees like it too, honestly. I think not everybody wants to be a partner. Not everybody wants to grow up to like not have a life. Um, <laughs> but if you think of it as a regular corporation or a regular kind of job, now there's an opportunity for people who really just want to be technical, to be technical and have a place in a firm, to do what they like best in their career path and not be forced that, oh my God, I have to be a partner or I'm a loser. And that sounds kind of harsh, but I think there are a lot of people sitting in managerial seats who feel like, oh, I have to be partner or, you know, I didn't do what I was supposed to do. And yet they really shouldn't be partner and they would be just as happy or staying where they are if they had their own career progression and a, a space for them. Whereas in the business model today, it's like, if you don't make it to partner then you're not, you know, then you didn't make it. And it shouldn't be like that because there are lots of accountants doing lots of good things that don't have to be partners. So what advice would you give to firms to compete a little bit better in today's marketplace? Any actionable steps for them, Jody? Um, stop billing by the hour, <laughs> stop <laughs> keeping time, right? Can I just like, <laughs> stop doing what you've been doing for hundreds of years, right? Stop doing all that. But no, I think really, and this is what I wrote about in my book is figure out how to productize your service offerings, right? So that's essentially what cloud accounting is. It's just a productized service offering where basically you take a handful of components, you create a deliverable about, around it, and you put some sort of technical skill set on top of it and you sell it. Right. So if you think about monthly bookkeeping, that's a productized service offering. Right. So why can't you do that with tax planning? Why can't you do that with some sort of audit advisor? You can do it with anything. You just have to take the right components, create your deliverables and sell it in a recurring revenue manner. And that makes your firm that much more valuable, which, again, cracks me up, because if you think about it, who does typical valuations? CPA firms yet they haven't figured out that the value of their firm would be worth more if it had a reoccurring revenue component to it. Like, what am I missing? <laughs> I don't know. I, it, it frustrates me because I, I, I keep thinking, like, I know, like, these guys are really smart. Like, they didn't get to where they are because they're not smart. But yet there seems to be lots of things that, I don't know, many people see so clearly 
and yet they don't see it as being a problem. And maybe it's because it's their own, right? Like it's hard to see things when it's your own. You just think they'd start to see the writing on the wall. And Jody, you're beautifully positioned with one foot in the, the fintech world with April and one foot in the CPA world. How much is the technology and the software driving what is happening in accounting firms? <laughs> I think software is a component of it, but quite honestly, a lot of firms could just be changed if they unified their processes. Even take out the technology, which again, because firms haven't changed in so long, part of it is, is they accepted everything that walked in their door. They never standardized anything. They never standardized their processes. So if they would just standardize their process, they would get huge productivity gains, then put on technology, and then they would actually make a difference. If you just insert technology on the firm today and you don't go back and you think about those business processes, all you're doing is paying for expensive tech and a broken business. You're just doing all the wrong processes faster, aren't you? <laughs> exactly. And so I think part of it is because like people think, oh, tech is going to solve all their problems. Tech is not going to solve your problems. You have to fix your business first then apply the right technology so you get to the end result you want. People think that technology is the be all end all and it's not. At the end of the day, you really have to like think about your business as a whole and figure out what business works and then add the technology to the pieces that need it. Yeah, I like that holistic thinking. And I'm just going to ask you to finish with uh, perhaps some words of advice for firms to be more future facing and holistic in their advice to the clients. Because ultimately, this is all about benefiting the clients, isn't it? But just while you think about that, if people want to have a conversation with you, you, Jody, and find out more about the great stuff you do, what's a good way for them to reach you? So the easiest way to find me is just on LinkedIn and you can just go to LinkedIn, Jody Paydar, and follow me or friend me there and um, reach out, send me a message, whatever. I'm happy to talk to everyone. I'm not like, I'm not snobby like that. Right. No, you're not. You will talk to anyone and you will talk and you've got loads of great things to say. This has been wonderful. So leave us and the accounting practitioners listening and even the fintech people that support the accountants with some words of advice to serve better, serve their clients, serve their customers, think more holistically and even be a bit more confident about it because a lot of this is in the mind, isn't it? Oh, it's 100% in the mind. And I think a lot of it is just get started, right? So if you think about, um, I think there are a lot of firm owners who are just overwhelmed and so they don't do anything, right? It's like they're deer in headlights. You just got to start. And the fintech people are there to help you. Like they want you to adopt new technologies. They want to help you. So, you know, ask them for help if you need help. And I, I would argue that probably most of the vendors in our space want to help the firms. They're not just there to sell something. They know that these are long-term relationships and they're willing to help you get to where you need to be in your firm and to help you find the tools to make it work. But Jody, let me ask you, how many vendors consult accountants in writing and creating software that's going to serve those accountants? Do they involve the CPAs in the R&D process? I think most of them do, actually. I think there are quite a few that do engage. I mean, you can even look at some of the the tools in the U.S. now that are 100% CPA from built, right? So like Flowcast, right? Like they they pride themselves on being by CPAs for CPAs. Botkeeper has a ton of CPAs on their team, right? Um, April, we're building it with CPAs. So like <laughs> there are a lot of technology companies that do like CPAs and will use them. There are also technology companies that use them as like service, like or as um research and development, right? They ask them questions. They like them. Uh, they, they find out what they need as testers. Um, but 
again, as a CPA, you have to be willing to give them your opinions and tell them what's important to you too, because you can't just say, oh, it's broken and walk away. Like, or, oh, it doesn't work for me. Goodbye. Like if you're not going to step up and help these vendors create the software that you want, then how can you complain about it? Because it doesn't work because they're not mind readers. And if you don't help them figure it out, how are, how are, how are we as a whole, as a profession, including the vendors, the CPAs, anyone who serves CPAs or accountants, how are we all going to move forward together if we're sitting in different hallways and not talking to each other? That's so true. It's the BMWs, the bitches, moaners and whiners that are always complaining, but they don't have any constructive suggestions to make it better, do they? 100%. And the other thing is, is too, is don't be so, I guess, not open to things. Because if you think about it, a lot of times when you think about innovation, they do something completely different. And the CPAs will be like, sorry, I can't do that. You have to come to the table with some idea that things are going to change. The way you do your job is going to change a little bit, but like take a minute and learn it and see if it could work in your life. Not just like be like, oh, I can't do that because, you know, we don't do things like that in my firm, which seems to be too often of the response. That's a strong call to arms. Jody Pader, that's been wonderfully insightful and extremely entertaining. Thanks so much for your thoughts today. Welcome to our Here's What Works section. This is when we look at real life examples of what really works to help accounting practitioners do their job more effectively and productively. And Martin, I've got a question for you. How often do you ask accountants leaders of accounting firms, what their biggest challenges, and they say to you, talent, recruitment, retention, bringing in the right people to drive growth. Tell me that's not the priority in board meetings these days. Roughly, it's eight times out of every 10. <laughs> what do they do about that? Because when you look at accounting firm websites and value propositions like I do, you see the same websites saying the same thing, making the same promises with the same values, the same mission statement, the same colors, the same kind of people for the same kind of salaries and everything's just too samey. So how does an accounting firm stand out as a brand? That's what we're going to talk about today. Set this up for us from your perspective, Martin. Generally speaking, and I am speaking generally because I'm sure there are exceptions. If we take a website for an example, as the when a, a firm launches a website, you find you look at the website and they proudly tell you that it's taken two years for them to get this together. And you look at it and go, Why? Because there's nothing different about it. There's nothing, it's the same as you say, it's identikit. Oh, they've changed the logo from two years ago at a huge cost, but it doesn't do anything different. It's probably gone from dark blue to a slightly darker blue as well. And the, the thing is, is that so often, and this is, this is mistake number one, they spend time bickering over what they like the look of. And here's the killer point. Nobody cares what they like the look of. Everybody should be caring on what the client base or potential client base like the look of. So the first mistake that's made in any kind of branding is it's done based on an accountant's viewpoint where you're not trying to win accountants. So, you know, at this point, your own opinion on the branding is kind of pointless here. And I remember somebody once saying to me that if there was one overriding strap line that could describe all accounting firms, you know, that everyone could use as their strap line, it would be so-and-so accountants. Meh. Why? Of course, of course, when you get do that in a, in a keynote scenario, you get a laugh, in a laugh of acknowledgement in the room. But why does meh resonate with everyone? And go, yeah, that's about right. It's because they're doing things from their own perspective, not the perspective of the audience. So whether they're trying to attract talent or trying to attract clients, 
the messaging, the look, anything to do with the branding is not geared towards those two audiences. It's geared towards what the managing partner likes. You bring up another excellent point, Martin. Most accounting websites and propositions are conflicted and that they are trying to do two things with the same message. They're trying to attract new clients and new business opportunities. And the business owners want to hear one thing. And they're also trying to attract staff. This is a great place to work. We've got a strong employer brand. Now, you mix those messages up. That's not good for Google. That's not good for people trying to find you because your vision, your values speak one thing. We're client-centric. Well, the clients might be interested in that, but your employees, that's not going to attract them necessarily. So you've got to say the same things in different ways to two different audiences. This is why savvy firms are now starting to consider the idea of having two different websites. One's your company brand for new clients, and the other is your employer brand for new recruits, and they say different things. For instance, for new recruits, what we do, projects we're working on, who we are, how we work, what makes people stay, where we're heading as a firm, why you should work for us, what your career might look like, how we contribute to society, what we do with diversity and inclusion, what are our company financials, what's the demographics of our employees, how often do people get promoted? How long do people stay here? Clients are not interested in that, are they? Clients are certainly not interested in that, no. But it, it goes, again, even deeper. If you go into a, an accounting firm that has a specialist tax department and you talk to the tax partner and you say to the tax partner, who set up this tax department? And they say, well, I did. And, say, and what are your qualifications to do so? Why, how would you know what I set up a tax department? And then they roll off to you their experience and qualifications in tax, which makes them very qualified to set up a tax department. And you say, right, who's responsible for the branding? Uh, that's me as well. And what are your qualifications in branding? And of course, there's nothing whatsoever. And why did you not therefore give that to a branding expert to do? Because uh, there isn't one. Not just branding, but the whole marketing, the proposition, putting it together, conveying that value. If you're doing it for a client, they want to know about your service lines. Yeah, they want to know about how you work, but how you work with clients. They want to see your thought leadership. They want to know the tools and the tech that you use, your technical expertise, your case studies, your testimonials, your staff, future staff don't want to know that. So the first thing for me and what works with employer brand is to set it apart from your prospects or your ideal client brand and either say it in a different place on the site or get a whole new site for it and say, why are a great place to work? That definitely works. It's brave, it's new, and you've got to get a lot of stories together. But ultimately, why you are a fun place to work, why work there is interesting, and why you are different to or better than all the other choices that that graduate or that senior lateral hire as a partner on another firm sees as different to come over to you. Yes, that, that, that's right. And again, please bear in mind that the, the messaging is done by somebody who either has got no qualifications in messaging, branding and marketing, or gave it to a marketing person who submitted it for their approval and they didn't know what was good and what wasn't. So here's a, here's a real a real example, guys, for something that's, that's worked. I may have reiterated this in a previous episode. Up in the Northeast of England, there is a firm whom when they recruit, by whatever means they recruit, when you walk in their door, there is this uh, checklist, I guess you'd call it, this chart of the characteristics that make a great employee of that organizer, of that particular accounting firm. Uh, you know, characteristics, technical skill sets, 
general outlooks and mindset, that kind of thing. And somebody comes to greet you from that firm when you arrive for an interview and they say, hi, it's lovely to see you. So-and-so will be out to meet with you in five minutes. But just before they do, look over there and have a look at our 16 point, what makes a great employee of our place or team member of our firm. And if you feel that that's mostly you, then they'll be, they'll be delighted to meet with you. If you don't feel that's a good fit for you, don't worry about it. Don't wait. Just let yourself out and save us some time. And that's actually their interview technique. They actually wait for the uh, potential employee to pre-qualify themselves as being a good fit. Now, obviously, some people desperate for a job will just say, oh, yeah, that's me completely. You know, and won't even look at it. But for the more discerning, they will say, actually, this is the place I want to work. And it's a great way of establishing the brand. Say, this is what we stand for. This is what we find is important. This is our mission. This is our focus. This is why we're in business. This is why we want to hire you. Does that sound good? So right away, there's a fit there. And again, I don't see very many, if any, and I'm trying to think of any at the moment, firms who on the profile page highlight their team's journey through the ranks of the organization. You see that, you know, um, you see a profile that says, um, Peter loves skiing, drinking wine, and men who aren't afraid to cry. You, you, you see that, but you don't see that Peter Jonas is an 18-year-old. Peter arose through the ranks through to his brilliance, qualified this year, became this, advised client X on that. And you don't see that people have got a journey. So another thing that I would love to see firms do, and it certainly works from a recruitment perspective, is if you're trying to recruit talent, then show them how your existing talent got to high positions. Because the talent you want are ambitious. So show them that there's a path. Show them that there's a clear way. Show them that your firm is all about developing talent. And one of the best ways to do that, you'll know that outside of the podcast here, Martin, I do video interviewing for accounting firms and, and interview the personalities, the people that have been there 10, 15 years, and we ask them why they've stayed. And with the people that are just joining, why did you join? Why did you resist the temptation of other people to join them? What stood out about this firm? And bringing these stories to life, yes, they look good on a web page, and it's better than not having them about their journey and why they join and why they love working there. But what better way than to bring those out with real-life video stories in a conversational way? It's much more compelling. It's that social proof that you often talk a lot about. That is, for me, what works with an employer brand, where your own employees say, this is a great place to work. It comes out of their mouth. You should work here because I do too, and here's why. We're talking here about here's what works for employer branding, okay? And Rob started this section by saying, consider a separate brand for your lead generation, your client acquisition efforts, than from your talent acquisition efforts, um, and which is which is a great piece of advice. But if I look at what ultimately works, is that you know I, I conducted a, a survey called Passport to Partnership, which runs started in 2015, runs to this day, and it's about what makes partner material or leadership material. And when you look at why for why young professionals stayed in their firm, it's because they're bought into what the practice is doing. They genuinely believe that they are making someone's life better as a result of being there. They are genuinely going home and telling their other half about their day and how what work they're involved in. They are genuinely involved in shaping the firm's CSR policy. They are genuinely engaged in looking at how they can become a partner, not for the sake of becoming a partner, but for the sake of doing even more for their clients than they already do. That is a recurring theme. It was in the research and it is in anecdotal evidence. And so the firm needs to communicate 
to people that that's what it's about. The firm also doesn't need to say, we're going to chain you to a desk for 10 or 15 years in the hope that you might make partner and have some kind of a career, but that's all on us. So you've heard what works, you've heard what doesn't work. Make your employer brand stick out. Start to chart some stories and journeys of your people and explain why it's a fun place to work, but don't mix that up with your message for clients. They don't need to hear all of how great it is to work there. They want to hear what a difference you make in their lives. Final thoughts from you, Martin, on employer brand for accounting firms. If anyone listens to this has the misfortune of encountering me at a speech, keynote, conference, and I stare at you, I picture out randomly in the audience, and I say, from a client perspective or from a prospect perspective, why should I join your firm? And I put the microphone in your face and you freeze. That means that this section hasn't reached you. You haven't understood it, okay? You should be able to be put on the spot and be able to say, the reasons why people come to us, Martin, are these. And once you've got that, that's what works. You're listening to the Accounting Influencers Podcast, cutting through the crap to bring you the very best interviews, insights, and wisdom from the planet's most influential people in the accounting and fintech world with Rob Brown and Martin Bissett. And a big shout out to one of our newest commercial partners here on the podcast, it's Practice Ignition. Martin, how would you explain what those guys do? Businesses such as accounting and bookkeeping firms use Practice Ignition to one, help them grow, two, be more efficient, and three, create win-win client relationships. There are nearly 5,000 accounting and professional services firms around the world who use Practice Ignition, and they do so to win new business with impressive digital proposals, they engage clients with a clear scope of work, and get paid on time by automating payment collection. PI integrates with the leading business apps such as Gusto, QuickBooks, Xero, Zapier, and it does so to automate time-consuming tasks. That means less admin and more time for clients, Rob. We've got a special offer from our PI partners. Use the code AIR21 to receive 25% off all plans for your first six months. But that's 25% off with the code AIR21. And the link is info.ignitionapp.com forward slash AIP for accounting influencers. Practice Ignition, it's time to ignite your practice. Welcome to this week's expert interview, and I'm thrilled to have with me today from Accounting Web, it's Richard Hattersley. Good day, sir. Good day to you, Rob. Thank you very much for inviting me. Richard, it's great to have you on. For people that haven't come across you, and even Accounting Web, just tell us a bit about your background and your areas of expertise. Yeah, thanks very much, Rob. Yep, I'm the editor of Accounting Web. Anyone who doesn't know Accounting Web, accountingweb.co.uk is the, the largest UK community of accountants. Um, so it's my job really to provide the news and the content to serve our dear readers. I've been with the site for around about six years now and moved across various different desks mainly feel most comfortable on the practice desk where I'm looking at the inner workings of how accountants run their practice, whether that is from uh, strategy, well-being, or even compliance issues such as anti-money laundering. Did you fall into the accounting world? Are you a qualified accountant? But funnily enough, I'm not actually, Rob. Uh, when I first started with Accounting Web, it was kind of picking up the, the, the pieces from the beginning. Uh, my partner actually is an accountant, which made the job quite easy. <laughs> it made it easier any kind of advice I needed, she was there to bridge the gap for me. We're going to talk about awards, especially today, because with Accounting Excellence, you're very involved in that. Uh, but before we do that, you're in a unique position, Richard, to talk about the accounting profession as a whole. What kind of shape do you feel it's in right now, given all that you're seeing? The, the profession's certainly gone through quite a unique time with the pandemic. And I think the pandemic has accelerated a lot of those themes and trends, which we have seen with our Accounting Excellence Awards. 
things which maybe five years ago were um, just things what the progressive films were doing and suddenly been embraced by um, many other films as they've just been dropped into the uh, into the deep end with the pandemic. And so we are seeing a lot of films pick up tools which naturally they may have not done beforehand. And it'd be interesting coming out of the pandemic now, whether they continue to actually keep going and pressing forward as we've seen over the past two years and, and going at a similar kind of pace. You mentioned accountingweb.co.uk, but you're not just a UK presence, are you? You are all over the world. Absolutely, yes. We have a sister site, accountingweb.com, um, which um, deals with those um similar regulatory matters but for US audience and whilst we here in the UK we deal with uh, those specific tax issues those specific tech and practice issues which very much unique for the UK audience but there's always a crossover between the two I think no matter where you are geographically there's some similar issues there which affects accountants wherever you may be. Yeah and it's not just tax compliance, technical stuff, regulatory stuff that you talk about. We shared a wonderful piece that you did on a recent episode about the Super Bowl. You must have had fun writing that one. I had a lovely time writing that one, Rob. Thanks very much for bringing that one up. And thank you very much for uh, discussing it on the podcast as well. Uh, your your US listeners, Rob, will know full well the uh, how important the Super Bowl is and just how spectacular those ad, ad bits are as well, those commercials. Um, so... <laughs> Who knows? Later down the line, you may see the uh, the tax authorities of either the UK or the US embracing those similar kind of adverts later uh, commercials later down the line. We might have full scale blockbusters. We can only wish. Eh? Talk to us about the Accounting Excellence Awards. These are a big deal in the UK, aren't they? Indeed, yep. They started over a decade ago. The, the aim of them really is to salute those progressive firms and individuals. You know, the ones who have really driven change within the profession. Uh, we've recently opened up this year for entries. Um, and while it's great to be there, to, to, to be the person to lift the award and to have all that kudos and well-earned respect for being the, the award winner, it's also an education program because I think it's important, and as a journalist observing this, it's important for us to report on some of those trends and themes which we're seeing and how over the years these can then trickle down and become kind of commonplace within the profession. It was only, let's say, less than 10 years ago when cloud was seen as this kind of mysterious thing and then suddenly it's just business as usual and i think with the awards it's very interesting to track just how these uh how these trends have suddenly been embraced over the years but the accountant excellence awards it is a big awards program here in the uk when we speak about awards to accounting firms and even the fintech and software vendors that serve them it is a bit of a conundrum it is a bit of a mystery. Why are they there? Why should we enter them? Should we there at all? Do we lose out by not entering them? So we'll talk a little bit about that as we go on, because you're very heavily involved in the awards. But just talk to us about some of those trends you have picked up over the years. Yeah, I mentioned cloud there, Rob. It is a big one, absolutely big one. Um, I think back in 2013, um, 40% of entrants actually just referenced the cloud as a big driver of their success. Now look at it today and the majority of the firms it's just it's there it's just it doesn't even need to be said and we we've seen cloud as an important one but then coming off of that one we've seen things like expense capture tools which uh, have grown and that's also been driven frankly by the uh, uk government's drive over here towards tax digitalization um that's been a big driver for that one but we are seeing these trends reflect society reflect how accountants are currently so uh, flexible working for example has 
just skyrocketed for obvious reasons, but it was going that way anyway. It was 9% entrance were saying they were doing this. And one of the things which separated them in 2014, in 2020, just before the pandemic, it was 43% of firms were saying that uh, flexible working was something which really separated them. Even before the pandemic, it was just on its way to becoming just a business as usual thing. We've also seen sudden spikes in client onboarding that suddenly become a big part of the client service offering. Uh, and there's some obvious ones as part of client service, like client surveys, MPS, benchmarking. We've seen the rise of niching, especially with those newer firms. That I believe the uh, the new firm entries each year are kind of dominated by those firms which have a specialism. And then they go on into the sole practitioner award to uh, actually pick up an award there. The, the winner of the sole practitioner award last year uh, was a specialist in the beauty industry. So we are seeing those that really embrace these trends, the ones which really become the trailblazers of these trends are the ones which naturally go on to win awards. And then we, we pick up those trends afterwards. But yeah, some really interesting, fascinating trends we've seen. In terms of the categories, is it just getting bigger and bigger, more categories? Or are there any categories that are becoming obsolete? We've still got those core pillars of accounting excellence. We've got the firm awards, a small, medium, large, um, and then the sole practitioner. And then we've got those pillars of what it is to be an excellent accountancy firm. So client service, growth, those are just pillars of what is to be a firm. And then, as you said, Rob, as we, we move on, we're seeing a change in the profession and we're, we're responding to that. So we've launched the Investing in People Award a couple of years ago, which was in response to the shift towards firms taking more of a more notice in well-being. This year, we've launched the Pride Award, which is recognising those community and philanthropic things which firms are doing. And that's really grown from the, the COVID-19 crisis, where we saw firms go above and beyond to really help and support uh, their small business clients, working all hours, despite what was happening in their personal life. And so we've seen that grown from being a hero award to just being a general community award, because we are seeing... The, the outreach from firms is, is growing. It's just becoming a, a big part of what firms do day to day in general. And we often ask our guests on the Accounting Influencer podcast, what in their view separates the good firms from the great? And there are so many more aspects to running a strong accounting firm now than there used to be. You've mentioned a lot of them. Are you detecting that the great firms are really up in the game in some of these areas? Absolutely. Um, and it is interesting that we're still seeing those ones which are the great ones, the ones which are really setting the trend. And they are the ones which are the finalists, are like the clear winners, the ones we're picking up the, the awards. But the ones which are more clustered in the middle, the ones which are just outside the finalists, any other year they would be completely progressive. Like years before, they would be the ones picking up the awards. But it's getting much more competitive because... All of these uh, trends are becoming just what firms are doing these days. Why should an accounting firm enter the Accounting Excellence Award? For starters, I think the main one is it's great just to recognise yourself, recognise what you've done, the achievements you've done, recognise the achievements your team's done, because there's a lot to be proud of there. Beyond that, though, it's been a constant since I've, I started looking at accountancy, the accounting profession. Recruitment's been a real constant throughout. And uh, firms are always looking for ways to separate themselves, always looking for ways to show that they are a progressive firm. They're different from the other firms. They're, they're not like your, your average accountant. And there's no better way to show that you are different from your competitors than being an award-winning firm. And then that goes the same way with retention. And then beyond that, it's also a great way to market your firm. Clients want to be with a firm which is an excellent firm. And there's no better way of doing that than actually winning an award 
and showing your client that the industry has recognized us. You bring up some very good points. It is so difficult for accounting firms to differentiate themselves these days, both to potential new clients and to staff talent that they want to attract. Because you've probably seen millions of accounting firm websites. They all look the same. They have the same color, the same branding, the same values, the same claims, the same promises, the same range of services. It is hard to stand out. So with awards, I guess you're looking for some kind of an edge. It is getting more and more difficult. Geography is no longer an issue anymore. And so you're not just competing with your accountants, you're, you're the firm across the street. You're competing with the one in the different side of the country, even in a different country you might be competing with. You need that edge. And that may be a certain specialism that you go in, that could be your edge, or becoming an award winner is certainly an edge that can separate yourself, not just your clients, but also to any new recruit that you're looking to uh, to take on. So you talked earlier about the competition in awards, more and more categories, more and more firms and companies applying for them. Are there any other trends you've seen with awards over the years, Richard? Absolutely, Rob. Recently, the, the, looking back over, over the past year's entrance, there's been some new trends which have been very specific to the pandemic, very specific to coming out of the COVID crisis, especially with smaller firms, a real rise in the virtual finance um, directing approach. This is as firms have come up lockdown and supported clients with loans, grants, and just a more general all-round offering. Now, this might have been seen more of something which larger firms might have dominated, but um, last year, the smaller firms, I would say about 90% of them um, referenced virtual finance as their key offering, something that differentiates them. The other thing that, that I noticed over the last year was how diversity has come up again and again. I think that's really important. Uh, a moment ago, we were talking about recruitment, especially important these days when it comes to employee satisfaction, when it comes to getting the best out of your team, when it comes to engaging with clients. And we are seeing how diversity is becoming an important thing, especially with like the, the Gen Z accountants coming through. Um, similar to that, organizations which are now taking on kind of like corp status, how something like the environment has become a big thing for, for firms. It might be big in the terms of specializing for those certain clients or just driven a demand by their employees, a demand to embrace things which employees actually care about. And so those are big things for firms just to cater for their clients and their staff. And then the other thing which I did notice was how client service, the battleground between small and large firms have suddenly got a little bit closer. At one point, it was the smaller firms, you would say, were the ones offering that personal touch. They were the ones which would be there to uh, to know your, your dog's name as it came in, into the office. Now it's a little bit more competitive. I think tech certainly helped there, but I think the numbers game of the large firm is making that one much more competitive. And how tempted are you? This is fascinating stuff to really go micro with your categories here. For instance, the best ESG, Environmental Social Governments Initiative for big firms, or the best recruitment program for a mid-tier firm, or the best customer experience for a small firm or the best community initiative. You could go really small with your categories if there's lots of people applying, but then you'd have millions. <laughs> <laughs> You're right there, Rob. And I think these categories, we've already seen how we've expanded the awards to take on, like the Investing in People Award, how we've taken on those philanthropic trends and expanded the awards for that. So 
who knows? These are definitely the trends which you picked out there, Rob, are definitely trends which we are seeing growing. So there could be awards like that in, in, the, in the near future. Who knows? But if you're putting together an award entry, just focusing on those specific elements are just real, like a real key way to differentiate yourself. When people enter awards, I'm going to ask you for a, a magic formula or some tips that would help them. But the question that a lot of people think when they come to these is a lot of time, a lot of effort, a lot of research, preparation goes into even getting a nomination together. Are there any benefits for entering even if they don't win, Richard? I think just sitting down and writing out your achievements over the past 12 months, it's just something which I think BIM should be doing around about this time anyway. Uh, in the UK, we've kind of gone through our busy tax season. And so naturally, we're coming into February, March time when things may quiet down just a little bit. Of course, there's other kind of deadlines happening. But naturally, this kind of year is a great time to just reflect on your successes, reflect on your achievements. And entering the award is a great way to do that. It kind of structures the way that you can reflect quite easily because of the way that these award entry forms are put together. So you can sit down, you can look at what you've achieved, and then also what you want to achieve, your goals for the future, what you want to achieve over the next 12 months. And it can really help you achieve what you want for your firm. So I think even if you don't win, it's worth just sitting down and doing, going through that process. And I've been a judge on several awards panels for things like this. Talk to us a little bit about the judging process. What are the judges like? How are they chosen? How do they go through it? Uh, give firms an insight into what happens on the other side. As you can imagine, it is these awards can be quite heated. The, the, the debates there, <laughs> you, you might be sitting across from someone who has the, the opposing view to you, and it can be kind of a long drawn out process. But I think that's important because then you can get to who actually is the, the winner by having those conversations, those heated conversations. So the process is that uh, it, it goes through uh, an entry scoring process. Uh, the judges come together and it's almost as if you're, you're arguing for who you want to win then. But as in terms of the judges, it's, it's almost a who's who of the accounting industry. Uh, many, uh, I'm sure, kind of past guests on, on this uh, illustrious podcast as well, Rob, I know you had Julia Penny on not too long ago and, and Julia's a, uh, a judge on the awards. We've got some big names from the UK accountancy scene, such as Rebecca Bennyworth, Paul Applin, who's a former ICAW president. Uh, we've also got previous winners as well who are joining the ranks. So they've they can kind of come from the uh, being there, and they can look on and be the uh, and, and kind of welcome in the the newcomers. So someone like Alistair Barlow from the real innovative firm Flinder. He's a, he's a judge on Accounting Excellence Awards after picking up, I think, about four or five of them. I don't think his trophy cabinet's big enough for any more, so he's decided to join us as judge. So some names who's been there, and, and so they're rightfully placed to judge their peers. You offer awards mostly to the accounting firms. Do the vendors get involved with categories? Do they have their own trophies to win? Yes, we have vendor awards, and these ones are really judged on their relationship with accountancy firms, how they kind of support firms. So we have the, the partnership award, which shows that really important relationship now that vendors have with accountancy firms. I think they are, for, for many firms, they are there's a secret source, I think, these days, the ones which kind of gives them that added oomph, whether that is in their marketing or whether that isn't just in their day-to-day -day processes. So there are a handful of vendor awards which are recognised on the night as well. It's been fascinating to demystify these awards. There's clearly a lot in it for all of the parties concerned, whether they win or not, even just recognising their own achievements. 
I'm going to ask you to finish by giving us your tips for those listening to handle the whole process better and give themselves the best chance of winning. Just before I do that, if people want to talk to you about the great stuff that you put out at Accounting Web, some of the things that you're writing about at the moment, what's a good way for them to reach you? Um, countingweb.co.uk is the site. Go there if you're um, interested in the UK scene. Of course, we've got our sister site in the US, countingweb.com. You can find me on Twitter, uh, Aweb Richard, and also uh, LinkedIn. Just search for my name there, and I'd be more happy to uh, connect with you. Brilliant. And uh, finally, what are your top tips for companies, firms, vendors that are considering dipping their toes into the awards game and want the best possible results? It's that uh, that tip which you get every time you do an exam, I think. The, the one which your teachers, which you no doubt told you, make sure you actually read the question. Oftentimes, I think people might read the first couple of words, get a sense of what the question might be, and then just leap in with what they think it is. The other one is bring your stats. You, you've, you've got something to be proud of there. So if you've got stats to back up what you're saying, put that forward. It's going to differentiate you. And I, I guess this one might be more for the UK audience, Rob, but don't be humble. If, if you've achieved something, be proud of what you've achieved. Um, it's, it's worth shouting about. So don't almost apologize for what you've done. Um, be proud of what you've done. Uh, there's been some awards where it feels like someone's almost apologizing for being an excellent accountant, which is, is kind of funny reading it. But I think there's a lesson there is to embrace what you've done. And then also, I think is there's that appreciation these days that clients kind of expect more than simply a set of accounts and a tax return. I think it is that real value that that they that they uh, that they expect that customer experience that they really appreciate these days. So, what is it that you're doing that really goes beyond a set of accounts and a tax return? So it's worth thinking about those when you put pen to paper. They're very good. And I'm thinking of the Muhammad Ali quote, it ain't bragging if you've done it. Absolutely. We don't shout about it enough. That typical British understatement is we don't talk about it enough. But ethical bragging is definitely part of the game. And just finally, Richard, to finish, you're involved in PR, you're involved in media. There's a lot of kudos for a winner and even a nominated firm or vendor to get involved in this. And shouting about it in social media and in PR terms, isn't it? That was a trend which I didn't mention, Rob. Social media has become such a big thing. That's another one. Don't be shy. Don't be shy about using any tool which you've got um, at your disposal these days. Um, just to think maybe 15 years ago, we didn't have things like uh, Twitter. We didn't have things like uh, LinkedIn or, um, or Instagram, things which we can just use and get your message out there to a potentially huge audience. So shout about it but don't be shy about your achievements that's great Richard Hathley thanks so much for your time and your insights today thank you Rob this is the Accounting Influencers Podcast with Rob Brown and Martin Bissett so we come to the end of another big bumper Monday show of the Accounting Influencers Podcast on behalf of Martin Bissett and myself thank you to our 22,000 unique listeners all over the world we're predominantly in the US and the UK and then Canada, Australia, New Zealand, and all far-flung parts of the world in 150 countries. We're up to over 120,000 lifetime downloads now. Thanks to our commercial partners for sticking with us. Thanks to you, our listeners, for sharing the show, reviewing the show. Just tuning in. We know that you listen to multiple episodes, whether it's in that week or that month. And we're the only daily accounting fintech show out there. It's a big undertaking, but we love having you with us for the journey. And what have we done this week? Well, we finished with an interview with Richard Hattersley of Accounting Web. And I wonder if your firm, your fintech vendor company, 
your practice, do you enter awards? Do you feel that they're valuable? What do you get from them? How do you decide whether it's worth putting in the work and cataloging your wins, your achievements, your celebrations, your uniqueness, your values, your culture, whatever it is, whatever gets you that award nomination, whatever gets you in the mix, why do you do it? Well, Richard Hattersley knows why, because they run the, the Accounting Excellence Awards and they give these awards out. It's a very big part of what they do and they know what it takes to win awards, the mistakes that firms and vendors make in going for these awards and he's given you all kinds of secrets this week. So tune into that one definitely. If you haven't heard it already at this stage, then working backwards, we talked about employer brand in our Here's What Works section and Martin shared alongside myself some tips on what an employer brand of choice looks like in the accounting world. What are you doing to attract the next generation, beefing up your succession plan, letting accounting professionals at all stages know that it's worth coming over to your firm, those lateral hires, or as a graduate or new trainee, it's great starting their journey with you. And to what degree do you give them autonomy, flexibility over their journey with you? How do they have they, their hands on the steering wheel of their own career? Do you give them a story worth buying into? How do you look after them? How do you set yourself apart from other accounting firms that are wanting that kind of talent? So lots of implications there for you in that employer brand of choice. Then we talked to Jodie Paydar, didn't we? And she's the author of uh, Success to Significance, the Radical CPA Guide. And she wrote also New Rules for a Future Ready Firm. She's with April right now. And she's been sharing with us the relationship between accountants and software vendors. We hear a lot about the vendor agenda and to what degree the software and fintech companies are dictating what accountants listen to, what they think about, what they do, how they deal with their clients, the power that vendors have in going directly to clients, the data that they hold. So Jody unpicked a lot of that for us. She talked about disruption in the accounting profession and how the vendors are doing that. She talks a lot about tax software. She added the single biggest reason why so much money is coming into the accounting space from vendors, from venture capitalists, from private equity. And Jody tells it how it is. She's super passionate. You heard her in that interview. And she's all about changing the landscape for accounting vendors, particularly in the tax space. And she makes it no secret the fact that they're taking on TurboTax, who have just dropped £7 million in the Super Bowl ad. It's a big space. So hope you enjoyed what Jody had to say. And then before that, we looked at whether KPMG is big enough to fail. Is it too big to fail? Can it actually implode? Well, they've had a series of PR gaffes increasingly scrutinized on the audit side of things. They've lost a lot of professional credibility. What is that doing to them? Yes, the numbers still look great. Yes, they're still earning billions. Yes, still people want to work there. But is it too big to fail? That's what we examined in the news. Martin talked about a piece from Richard Murphy via Accounting Web. And we ask about the implications for your firm. We ask you whether you can suffer a loss of professional credibility and what that might look like. We examine the kind of things that damage trust in an accounting firm. So hopefully you've got a lot from that. That is this week's show. Remember to tune in to the Saturday episode. We've got our final series on 
why didn't they buy? And we're looking at you blaming your inability to land the deal on poor quality appointments. Is that really the case? Are they really poor quality appointments? Or are you just not doing the things that you want to do? So you can tune into Saturday's bonus on Saturday. But this has been the Accounting Influencers Podcast. I'm Rob Brown. Thank you for tuning in. Enjoy the rest of your day, your week, your month, your year. Thank you for reviewing the show, leaving a little five stars or a little ranking. If you feel so inclined, it would be great to have your endorsement. And remember, you can join us on Facebook, on LinkedIn, on Twitter. We have Accounting Influencers as a brand, and we would love to hear from you and involve you in the conversation. Thanks a lot and enjoy your day. This is the Accounting Influencers Podcast with Rob Brown and Martin Bissett.